Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hasia whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend, which means it is time to celebrate with a new episode. Coming up, New York Times Magazine staff writer Marcella Valdez unpacks her story about how the book business is diversifying slowly but surely. The values of the big publishers begin to trickle down through these communities like what will sell, what is valued, and they affect not just what we see on shelves, but they affect the people who are trying to write books. Then Wired culture reporter Kate Nibbs makes the case for why reality TV has seriously gone round the bend. Because I think that the streaming era has really accelerated the quantity of ridiculous shows, if not like the quality of them. But first, let's unwind from the week that was with two delightful humans. With us this week, we have the hosts of Celebrity Book Club with Stephen and Lily, Stephen Phillips Horst and Lily Murata. Stephen, Lily, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Okay, so I feel like we have to start with Benifer. Um Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez got married over the weekend. It's fully two decades after the term Benifer became a thing. Jennifer broke the news in her newsletter, which is called On the J-Lo. She said it was the best night of their lives. They had reconnected during the pandemic. And here we are. I just love this story so much. Um, Lily, what do you think? Is this something you've been following over the past couple of years or decades? It's decades, my entire life. Um, (laughs) I am like such a rom-com head. So like one, just anyone who breaks up and then gets back together if it's meant to be. But I loved Benifer like originally. That was huge. Just like original tabloid couple of my kind of teens. But enough J-Lo's um, movie about her being beaten by her architect husband and then becoming a Krav Maga um, expert is one of my favorite films of all time. And of course, Steve and I being from Boston, huge, you know, huge fan mm, of Ben. Affleck, of course. They're, they're, yeah, they're native sons and they kind of are the sons. You know, if anyone is the sons of Boston, it's sort of Ben and Matt and they have a lot of purchase in the Massachusetts imagination. And so for better or for worse through their ups and downs, we have to root for them. It's in the state constitution. <laughs> so when you see your boy doing good, when you see the redemption arc, you think, wow, you know, that, that could be me too. You know, you see, you saw what happened with him and Garner, and you know I love Jennifer Garner too. I'm a huge Alias fan, and you know, and then the cheating and the scandals, and you what he's always smoking the cigarettes, the Duncan. Oh my God, that meme was so perfect with him standing out the picture of him standing outside, and he's like a little schlubby, and he's wearing this gross shirt, smoking a cigarette, just looking desperately stressed out. It's just yeah. like been there, Ben. Shout out to his t-shirts 
those are all from this like the invent this company that invented the Yankees suck t-shirt called Sully's Tees <laughs> that I have spent too much money on their website. So me and Ben have that in common. Um, oh Steven, I feel like you have to the paintings. Yeah. So when I was in high school, um, I was an artist. I still am, obviously, but I painting was one of my mediums back then. And I did a, a, a series, a triptych of paintings of Jennifer Lopez. And then oh, one of them wow. was her and Ben um, at an award show, like Kissing on the Red Carpet. Um, it's a really beautiful series of works. I would say priceless. A um, triptych. Yeah. Oh my it was, God. Yeah, it was a triptych. And then I also wrote a book about Jennifer Lopez. It was like a children's book. Um, it was another sort of conceptual art project. And it sort of tracked the story of her relationships and how they've been affected by, you know, excessive media attention and how that can really doom mm. um, young, precious love in its nascent stages. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've, I've been watching with a lot of sympathy, you know, for many years, just all the work and heart and, and, and dedication they put into their careers and how that can torpedo something as fragile as love but so with ben you know you saw him try but fail and try but fail and then to see j-lo sort of take him back right to re-accept him and say i see everything you've been through you've seen everything i've been through and here we are in our 50s ready for each other yes ready for each other you know ready to accept each other and actually realize that that makes us stronger individually and makes us stronger as a union. <laughs> Is there another celebrity couple from 20 years ago that you think should get back together? Oh, I mean... This is so corny, but... Are you going to say... You say it. I, well, and and I don't want them to break up, but I'm like, yeah, like literally Rachel McAdams and... um Ryan Gosling to just make Ryan the Gosling. to make the notebook come true because wow. I'm literally like 80 in Christian. Um. <laughs> that is tacky. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it might be good for her career. I don't, she's oh, she's she's been a little random with her choices lately. I think, um, yeah. I mean, what came to mind for me was Drew Barrymore and Tom Green. Yes. Just oh wow wow wow! I completely blanked that one out. Wow, right. that happened. Because that was so silly and fun, and uh, I just... I mean, she's been joyous, like, her entire career. I mean, like, obviously at the beginning when she was, like, being such a drug addict in a wayward teen, but then, mm-hmm. like, after that, like, she's just had so much joy, and she's just been this absolute compass of joy, I think, for all of us. And also, Tom Green is, like, he's schlubby, he's weird, he's dorky, he's, like, he's... He's not some classic hunk on the cover of Harper's Bazaar, you know? And I think, um, oh, I think that would just be sweet. But I get it. I they moved on and what, you know, I understand. Okay, let's move on to a super weird story. I want to talk about the movie adaptation of Where the Crawdads Sing. It came out last week. It's produced by Reese Witherspoon. It stars Normal People star Daisy Edgar Jones. It is based on the 2018 bestselling book by Delia Owens. Uh, the book was also a Reese's book club pick. So what's really crazy is that there's all this media attention from the movie is bringing renewed focus to the fact that Owens is actually wanted for questioning about a murder that she may have witnessed in Zambia in 1995. This is like so crazy. There was a thoroughly reported piece about this 
in the New Yorker in 2010. That's eight years before the book even came out. So like this information existed before Owens got a book deal. But I just think it's so crazy, especially given the fact that now here's this huge movie. So like, what do we do with this information now that the movie is out? Like, Lily, is this a movie that you would have gone to see anyway? Absolutely. Um, Anything (laughs) Reese does, I'm there whether it's a teacup, a movie. Okay, but I watched, I also watched this like preview before a movie where it's like Reese talking about the crawdads. Mm, and mm-hmm. I had always just seen that book, you know, on shelves and didn't know the plot. I knew it was like an insane bestseller. And so I had no idea it was about, I was like, well, it has to be a mystery. Anyway, Reese talking about adapting a book was so funny because it was time, like she was acting like she was the first one to like, adapt a book into a movie where she was like it's so exciting to see a book which you read to then become <laughs> visual which is a movie and you're like mm-hmm, yes mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what happens <laughs> obsessed that it's actually about this now this woman is like questioned for murder that makes me want to see it more like i would have definitely oh, seen it but now i'm okay that that's double down for me now i'm gonna be running to my local multiplex so Stephen, what do you think? I mean, this news is definitely bubbling up in a new way. Do you think this says something about like how we treat celebrities? You know, the fact that like now she has all this acclaim, the story is getting more attention than it did when it came out originally in 2010? Huh. I mean, definitely fame will sort of bring attention. I think that's something that I've noticed. And on our podcast, Celebrity Book Club with Stephen and Lily, which is available on Apple Podcasts, anywhere uh-huh. you get your podcasts, um, you know, one thing makes you makes you interested in another thing the zambia question um for the crawdads yeah i mean that's i feel like it can only be good for whoever is distributing the picture i mean interesting i definitely thought of it the other way but i don't know i mean it's also like you you less want to see the movie now well, I so I did see the movie, okay. but <laughs> I have seen the film. Uh, my thought was that people would, you know, think like, oh, this lady has a pretty sketchy past. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, participate in in paying for this thing that ha- that is out now. You know, maybe I shouldn't support this film, given this very strange story about whatever happened in Zambia. But when you see a movie, are you like, I'm giving my hard-earned dollars to the creators of this film so they can know that I support their life choices? I like, mean, no. I like to think that I'm like choosing things to support people who like I think do good work in the world to a certain extent, you know. I disagree with that personally. <laughs> that you know, to me, you know, I'm consuming what I'm consuming. You yeah, know, I'm consuming yeah. it because I wanna. I mean, there could be some really interesting themes in the art there. You know, I would love to. I mean, I watched the trailer um, and I was tickled. Uh, <laughs> but will I? For me, it's probably going to be a plane. It's probably going to oh, be a plane movie. Yeah, yeah, which is essentially an attention hostage situation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I also want to talk about this uh, Drew Barrymore situation. She put up an Instagram video earlier this week. Uh, obviously, as y'all mentioned before, she's an actress and a talk show host. She is standing in the rain and she is just elated. You used the word joy to describe her earlier. I mean, listen to this. <laughs> Whenever you can go out into the rain, do not miss the opportunity. I mean, she is just thrilled. Lily, when is the last time you felt like that much just unbridled joy? 
Honestly, probably today. I just came from best-selling author Ellen Hildebrand's book signing, who I'm obsessed oh. with, number one beach read yes. author. And I met her, and I gave her a T-shirt I made inspired by her. And I had oh my god, full body chills. Was about to cry. So yeah, today I would say, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a high bar. What about you, Stephen? Huh, yeah. I mean, I will say, Lily, that's kind of like, I feel like that's the reverse of the Drew strategy, where it's like she's taking pleasure, like, in the ordinary yes, or the thing the that other people don't like. Whereas <laughs> you, you know, this is an extremely special occasion that your whole life has been building towards. It's very rare, yes. It's a rare thing. It's not like this ordinary thing that most people are like, yeah. oh, this sucks. Like, let me try to find the sort of the silver lining. Um, if you will. I'll actually say, yeah, I actually had a really similar experience to Drew because I am also kind of a compass of joy um, <laughs> for folks and for, yeah, for the so the American, actually the global population at large. General Globe. I was General Globe. I was actually in Miami recently. If you haven't been, you should totally go. It's a really dynamic city. Mm. And I was staying at this standard resort and spa and I was there with my hot, hot boyfriend and it started raining. And you see every, we're sitting in the pool everyone is running away from the pool you know they're mm. they're putting their magazines under their chairs they're they're umbrellas umbrellas umbrella. you know they're calling for the concierge you know everyone's freaking out and we just jumped into the pool mm. and we let the rain fall down over us and it was so fun and romantic and there was like two other kind of like overly romantic couples like also being sexy around the pool area at that time and like everyone else left so it was like okay we're here with like the horniest couples at the hotel and we're all gonna be very like rain right now um but yeah i was it was drew drew was right rain is fucking epic she also had which i was actually a little more moved by last week a not as viral i feel like went a little bit viral on twitter um she's like renoing a house and she found a window that was like covered up by the wall and it was that classic hgtv moment of like oh my god there's hardwood under the rug but like she started sobbing and laughing and crying i knew there was a window here i knew it She is just in this most epic space where it's like, I really feel she is genuine. It's not this new thing where she's being mm. like joyous because she knows it's going to go viral. No, I know. I do. It is cool how she's not trying to go viral. And I think that is special because it is like when I was dancing in the Raidens, like in Miami, I was being like, okay, but what if who's someone filming? who's filming? Who's filming? You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. that's going viral, this clip just being like, oh, I want what they have. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this video is on the internet. This is so random. <laughs> I did have a recent moment when I was walking my dog and I had just gotten an email that an event I was supposed to do that night got canceled last minute and it wasn't going to start till 8 p.m. And I was sort of like, oh, God, I'm really going to have to muster a lot of grandma energy to leave the house for something that starts at 8 p.m. And then I got the email that it canceled and then it started pouring and I was just like drenched and I was euphoric. It was fabulous it was way less sexy than your time steven sounds actually sexier rain <laughs> dog alone event being canceled yep, i yep, mean yep night in <laughs> when an event you don't want to go to is canceled that's yeah, that's a gift from god exactly exactly well so are you two thank you both so much this was very fun steven and Lily. y'all are the best thank you thank you guys so much this was so fun In just a minute, we'll hear about what's going on with the efforts to diversify the book business. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. The publishing industry has a long way to go when it comes to diversity and equity and inclusion. In 2016, Publishers Weekly ran a survey of publishing professionals, and 87% of them identified as white. A study from McGill University found that of the four major publishing houses, Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, and Macmillan, 89% of the fiction books that came out in 2018 were from white, non-Hispanic authors. Those are very big numbers. Marcella Valdez is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and she cited those numbers in a recent article. It's called Inside the Push to Diversify the Book Business. As someone who used to work in publishing, she said she wasn't surprised by those numbers. But that's a huge bummer because it means we're all missing out. Books are are a really special place where we discover who we are. And, and that help us see our place in the world and our relationship with other people and also to understand other people's place in the world. And so the fact that books, which is the medium that I adore above all, suffers from this lopsided production mechanism is heartbreaking to me. Now, those numbers I cited were from five or six years ago. And as Marcella's article says, a lot has changed since then, especially even just in the last couple of years, partly because of the murder of George Floyd. On top of that, conversations around Me Too and equal pay have shifted the landscape. But how much? Marcella says it depends how you measure. So what we definitely know is that um, there's been a lot more hiring of BIPOC editors and publicists and and salespeople. I mean, Penguin Random House, for example, uh, just last year um, passed over 50% of their new hires were um, people of color. And I think that's probably the first time in their history that that's been true. The number Mm -hmm. more normally would have been um, maybe 20%. And this is actually an effort they've been making for a while. So it's not just a sudden jump, but it it is a pretty drastic change. And I think as an industry, that's pretty indicative of the kind of jump. But you have to remember that publishing is full of people who have actually been working there for decades. So that's a big jump in the new hires, but that's not necessarily going to move a big needle in the in the total percentage of people who are working in book publishing. Right. I was going to say, yeah. if you're looking at total percentages that are close to 90 percent, you know, I mean, this, these are good shifts, but it's I don't know. It seems like so much about what you get at in your article is the fact that this is going to take a really long time. Exactly. It is going to take a really long time. And also a few of those people um, like Lisa Lucas, who's the publisher of Pantheon, um, who I profile in the piece, some of these people were hired at very high levels, but mm-hmm. most of them are editorial assistants. So a big question mark is, 
you know, are they going to make it in the industry long enough? Can they be supported? Can they be supportive? And can they get into positions of power where they actually get to become decision makers? So you mentioned Lisa Lucas. The story really focuses on her. You know, it's her photo at the top of the page. She is running Pantheon now. She's kind of become a beacon for new change. And I mean, she's definitely already, it seems at least, made some shifts. But I don't know. I mean, it's just fascinating to think about the fact that, you know, when we're talking about publishing, it takes years to get books from, you know, the the imagination phase to actually something that we're holding in our hands at the bookstore. Right. I think it's important to acknowledge, um, just first off, that Lisa Lucas is not the only person doing significant work in this area in book publishing. I mean, but what's significant about what she's doing is that she's gotten to start, she's taken this legacy imprint, Pantheon Books, which is a kind of old prestigious imprint in the huge Penguin Random House group. And she's their first Black publisher in 80 years. So this is in their entire history, essentially. And so this is an imprint that published, say, Jacques um, Derrida and Marguerite Dura and Studs Terkel. I mean, this is a very um, heady yeah. imprint. Those and are legends. Yeah. she's in charge of it. So I think that's a really um, Im- Im- different and important kind of change that's happening there. Yeah, I appreciate that distinction for sure. So in the article, you talk about the book. It was the first book she purchased when she came into her new role, right? Yeah. So it's called Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm. And this is one that I actually heard about several months ago now. And because it was pitched to me from the publicity team at Mm. Pantheon as this is the first book Lisa Lucas bought when she got her awesome new job. Mm. I haven't read it yet, but but you have, right? Yeah, I do. I love that book. It was a great book. It's good. Oh, I'm so excited to check it out. I mean, I don't know, though. It's interesting because I think about, you know, I appreciate that you've distinguished that, you know, Lisa isn't the only one, but I do. I can't imagine how much pressure is on her in this new role as everyone sort of looks at her as a beacon and even how much pressure is on this book, which, you know, is literally being pitched to the media as, hey, this is the first book Lisa bought when she got her new job. It's going to be amazing, you know? Um, It's sort of unfortunate that that's the way they're pitching it because the book is Mm. so much um, like greater than that as just being like the first thing that somebody did. I mean, obviously, um, like just the way it's written, it's this kind of kaleidoscopic narrative told from, I think, um, maybe 12 different points of views. Yeah, yeah. So it's really like, it's really um, stylistically very interesting. Hmm. But I can see that people, because they're waiting to see what Lisa's going to do, and there is a ton of pressure on her. Like within the industry, I think a lot of people are watching how Lisa is doing. And also they're watching to see Mm -hmm. how Dana Kennedy at Simon Schuster is doing. And, you know, these kind of, new leaders are under significant pressure. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating too thinking about it from my own point of view, because when I saw that email, I was like, oh, shoot, this is something I for sure want to check out because I'm so excited for Lisa in this Mm. role and seeing what she can bring. You know, I think that's maybe like the other side of the coin, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your story, I mean, you reported the hell out of this. There are a lot of layers. One is about the people in publishing. One is about the authors themselves and whether or not they're being supported. Another is about who is buying books and how to expand that audience. What do we know about who is reading these days? One of the things that's interesting to me when I did all my research was that there's just been study after study by places like the Peer Research that um, show that the profile of the person who buys a lot of 
books or re- reads a lot of books tends to be a pretty consistent. And that has been people who are college educated and who have disposable income, which isn't to say, I mean, they, obviously you can be a huge reader who's not college educated. In fact, I know several. Right. And you can, you know, check out library books a lot too, right? Exactly. Mm, yeah. Um, um, but just as a kind of big statistical overview, these are demographics that tend to purchase a lot of books. And what's interesting to me about that is that the those demographics have actually been changing a lot since the 1970s. I mean, the number of people who are non-white who have graduated from college has just skyrocketed since the mm-hmm. 1970s. And Similarly, there's um, data from places like McKinsey, which document the increasing prosperity of groups like um, African-Americans and their purchasing power going way up. So Mm -hmm. it seems like any smart business would say, wow, there's all these um, new people who fit right into my target categories. I should be make products that they want to buy. But that's not generally been the way that book publishers have been approaching this. Right. At one point, you you mentioned an agent who asked to remain anonymous, but was referring to what you call kind of the pre-George Floyd years. And they said it's basically white people looking for books about white people for white people. Yeah. That was a pretty intense quote to get. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, it's so striking. I think it's... I mean, partly I, what I find so frustrating about that is that it, this is a disservice to people of color who want to be in the publishing industry. This is a disservice to authors. It's also a disservice to readers. Absolutely. I mean, it's a disservice to readers. And and it's very discouraging, not just to publish authors, but I think that one of the reasons why I spent time talking with um, Laura Worrell, who wrote that novel, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm, mm-hmm. is that she had written this incredible essay called Writing While Black, in which she talks mm-hmm. about, you know, what it's like to be um, a Black woman in a writing workshop or a Black woman who's trying to um, find friendship and acceptance in the literary world in Boston. At one point, she was writing about that. And I think that what happens is the values of the big publishers, what they pay for, what they market, what they push, begin to trickle down through these communities, like what mm-hmm. will sell, what is valued. And they affect not just what we see on shelves, but they affect the people who are trying to write books. Um in an area. I mean, her book, she, she tried to, I think she was ignored or dismissed by 49 different agents Mm -hmm. if I remember like before she sold it in the summer of 2020, which is when all this began to shift. And then her Mm -hmm. book sold in a five or six way auction. That's the part that's kind of shocking to me. So you see how it affects the person who writes it or but it also affects the person like me or you or any of us who are, walking into a bookstore or scanning through websites and looking for things to read. And why is it hard to find narratives that show different kinds of people in ordinary situations like looking for love? Yeah. So you worked on this story for over a year. I'm curious, like what, I don't know, what to you is the biggest takeaway at this point? I think for me, the biggest takeaway is that, is that to really change things takes a lot of effort and a lot of time because mm-hmm. the two previous waves to diversify the industry that I write about in the piece, one of them in the 1960s and one of them in the 1990s, 
one of the things that happened with each of those is that after about uh, somewhere between a decade, probably, um, publishers stepped away from it. And a lot of editors were fired and a lot of people disappeared. And so there was no building on it. And, mm. and so then you come back and you start, you know, maybe a few people survived, but in terms of actually changing an industry, it takes more than just a handful of people. And so that's really only going to happen if this is something that the book publishers take seriously enough to really stay with it for a long time so that people can develop authors, develop careers, develop teams of sales staff. And that's what real change takes. Well, thank you for coming on. Seriously, I really appreciate your expertise and your time. Thank you. Our next guest is Kate Nibbs. She's a senior writer at Wired who covers culture. She recently wrote an article with the headline, Reality TV Has Become a Parody of Itself. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I want to start with the question that first came to my mind when I saw this headline, which is like, I don't disagree, but I almost wonder if this article could have been written a few years ago also. Um, You know what I mean? So like, I don't know. At what point do you think reality TV really has jumped the shark and how do you know? So I agree that it probably could have been written a few years ago. I think it honestly could have been written at any point in time since reality TV really popped off in like the early 2000s because like the first batch of really popular reality programming, it's not like it was super normal and had really uh, basic premises exclusively and wasn't completely ridiculous because the first crop of reality TV shows had some of like the most outrageous, silly, ludicrous premises out there, like Kid Nation, which was 2007, where they literally dropped a bunch of kids in like a ghost town and had them kill chickens and fend for themselves. I'm not going to be with my parents. There's no adults. And I think I'm going to die out here because there's nothing. It's kind of hard to believe that I'm going to be living out here. But I'm going on this trip with my sister, Olivia. I can't believe that happened. It's truly wild. And then like there was the swan, which was all, it was like a reality competition show where people were competing to have plastic surgery, which is very Mm. ghoulish. Like reality TV has for sure always been a bit of a parody of itself. Um, But the reason why I felt compelled to write this now is just because I think that the streaming era has really accelerated the quantity of, Mm. of uh, ridiculous Mm. shows, if not like the, the quality of them. Well, totally. And I think it even speaks to like the bigger phenomenon just around TV in general, which is like everyone seems to be scrambling for content wherever they can get it. Right. So, you know, if it's Hocus Pocus 2, if it's is it cake, if it's a tweet thread that they've optioned, it's sort of like whatever the hell it is, like they're going to try and make it work, you know? Yes. And one time last year, I was absolutely shocked because I tweeted something and then I actually got an email from someone being like, I'm interested in making a documentary based on this premise. (laughs) 
actually had it happen to you. That's amazing. Yeah. I was like, I don't think that's a good idea, but um, it was just definitely an example of the fact that they are absolutely desperate for not unscripted programming right now because it's cheaper to produce. And if they, because they're going for having so much content, the quality control isn't quite there. Sure. So, uh, okay. So I don't, I do not watch reality TV, partly because I'm worried that once I start, I would like quit my day job and just watch TV for the rest <laughs> of my life forever. Yeah. Um. I'm also like the little bits of a lot of the shows I have seen kind of make me sad about humanity, which is the other reason why I don't, you know, I feel like it's just, it can be really snarky and petty and superficial and, and, and I don't know, I like, do you think there's any like legitimately good reality TV? I mean, I know that's in the eye of the beholder to a certain extent, but I don't know. I was curious what your take is on that. I do think there is legitimately good reality television, but it's like a tiny sliver of the pie, to be honest. Even mm-hmm. shows that seem more wholesome than others um, have had serious issues with um, like the contestants having mental health problems because of mm. all of the scrutiny on them. Like it's really, I, mean, I think it's so it, exploitative. How isn't it? You know? Yeah. Like it's really tough to make a good one, but I would say um, you mentioned, is it cake, which mm-hmm. is a completely ridiculous show. If, if uh, you're unaware of the premise, it's based on a meme where people would show photographs of uh, cakes that like really looked like other things. Like it, it was a very, realistic rendering of a shoe and then you cut it open and it's actually cake. I don't think that show has anything morally objectionable. Uh, It's just kind of goofy. (laughs) And then I honestly think like it's maybe not true for everyone, but there are some people who can appear on these shows that might have an exploitative premise, but they're, they're exploiting their appearance on the show to improve their lives. Yeah. So I think it definitely depends whether they're come like whether they're on the show for the right reasons. I know that's something that people always say, like, you're not here for the right reasons in the dating shows. I don't think you're here for the right reasons. And I don't know who is here for the wrong reasons. Other people might not be here for the right reasons. Mm. <laughs> if they're there with their eyes wide open and they know what they're getting into, I don't really see anything wrong with that either. Yeah. Somebody's getting exploited. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you, if like some sort of anthropologist were to watch some of these shows like 50 years from now, mm-hmm. do you think they would get an accurate sense of our world? You know, no, I, I think that these shows are sort I think they would get an idea of our world that was certainly pegged to the reality in the same Mm. way that like when you go and you get a caricature drawn of yourself by a sidewalk artist, there are certain Mm. features that are really played up and distorted, but it does kind of look like you at the same time. Um, When I was writing this piece about the recent crop of uh, reality shows and how they're sort of a parody of themselves, I read a really interesting book by a sociologist named Danielle Lindman, um, which is called True Story. And then I actually called her to talk about it. And she had some really trenchant things to say about the connection between reality TV and reality and how it's a really interesting thing to like study from a sociological point of view, because it sort of extracts these threads about contemporary culture and in a way like distills them into their 
most potent and pure form. That's fascinating. Um, have you ever thought about like, if you could make up your own reality show, what it would be about? Ooh, um, I haven't, but now I'm thinking about it. I feel like, <laughs> oh, you know, so I grew up in Chicago and my husband might murder me if he listens to this. So Charlie, <laughs> please stop listening. Um, Hi, Charlie. <laughs> but I was actually on a reality show um, that didn't air, thank God, um, because it was horrible. It was right after I graduated from college and I found an advertisement on the gig section of Craigslist, which is like how you know it's legit, um, for uh-huh. <laughs> to be like an extra in this reality competition that was... Um, it was like based, it was in the wiener circle, like the hot dog place. Well, and wait, the wiener circle, that's the place where they like insult you when you order your hot dog normally, right? Yeah. They were <laughs> making a like competition show, but, and I like insisted that Charlie, my husband come with me and he really didn't want to. And we did it for $50. I just remember someone at one point trying to throw slices of tomato, like on my face. And <laughs> it was it was really bizarre. And if I had to make a reality show, I'd make the opposite of that because it was a really horrible experience. Oh my God. Although honestly, considering the current climate, like I feel like if someone pitched that again, it probably would get picked up by one of the streaming services. No kidding. I mean, there's just so many and they're all vying for our attention, mm-hmm. you know? So like, why wouldn't you try? I hope no TV execs are listening to this because I really don't want the show to come back. <laughs> Well, Kate, thank you very much for chatting with me. This was super fun. Oh, thanks so much for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, I would love to highly recommend it. It's pretty fun. It comes out every Friday morning. And producer Anna and I just put a bunch of links in there to fun stuff. We'll also have a little summary of every week's episode. So that's a great way to kind of keep in the loop with what's going on with Nerdette. You can sign up for it at wbez.org slash nerdetteaf. Maggie Civet builds our newsletter every week. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. And Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. All right. We will see you next week. What are you going to do? Oh, Lily, not that one. What are you going to Drew? What are you going to Drew? Get out of here. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.